It's an old hymn that we sing, too, that goes along that, that line. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life's trials will seem so small when we see Christ. One glimpse of his dear face, all sorrow will erase. We've bravely won the race when we see Christ. Praise the Lord for that. Open with me to Luke chapter 11 this morning. In Luke chapter 11, we are up to verse number 29. We worked through verse 28 last Sunday. And I intend to finish through verse 54 today. All right. Didn't know if y'all throw things at me. But I think I can get us there. All right. I have titled this Light and Love. In the remainder of this chapter, Jesus is dealing with the crowd, and specifically here, the scribes and the Pharisees that have been questioning him. And as he talks to them, he talks to them about light, and then he talks to them about love. And the point that he makes to them is basically, let your light so shine before men that they may see the love of God your Father. And so I want to give you this this morning. We've already read from verse 29 through 36, so we'll kick right off there. And consider light. Let's pray before we do. Father, thank you this morning for time together with our church family, praising you for your goodness to us. Thank you for the hope that we have as believers that is out of this world. We truly have no reason to doubt you. You've always seen us safely through. You have promised us eternal life and and harbor on another shore. So is our boats of life go through the tossing and turning and storms of this life. Thank you for the confidence that we have that Jesus is our captain and our anchor will hold. Now, Lord, as we come to this time of considering your word, we ask for your blessing upon it. May the church be edified and may you be glorified. As we pray through Jesus' name, amen. If you remember from verse 16... There are those in this passage who are testing Jesus. Let's notice verse 16. It says, And others tempting him sought of him a sign from heaven. Well, here in verse number 29, Jesus calls them an evil generation for making such a demand of God. It reads, And when the people were gathered thick together, he began to say, This is an evil generation. They seek a sign, and there shall no sign be given it but the sign of Jonah, the prophet. William MacDonald, in his commentary here, reminds us that faith is not based on the evidences of the senses, but on the living word of God. Unbelief says, let me see and then I will believe. But God says, believe and then you will see. That's where we dwell. Jesus reminds these people here, you already have the sign of Jonah. He calls them an evil generation for asking for more of a sign. And and remember the context here. There was a man with a demon who couldn't talk and it was preventing this man from talking. And Jesus cast the demon out and then there was speech. This was a miraculous thing. It was a wonderful thing. It was a time to celebrate and praise God for his goodness. And these people say, well, show us another sign that we may know that this is from Heaven And Jesus, in rebuke to them, says, you're an evil generation, and there will no sign be given you except the sign of Jonah. Now, in verse 30, he tells them then that the Jonah sign represented a call to repentance and faith, 
for the people of Nineveh. For as Jonas was assigned unto the Ninevites, so shall also the Son of Man be to this generation. So just what Jonah brought to Nineveh, just what God accomplished through Jonah and Nineveh, so much more would God do in this world through the ministry of Jesus Christ. This call Jonah brought of repentance and faith, Jesus would bring so much more. When the people of Nineveh believed and obeyed this preaching, they went from the verge of judgment over to faith and repentance. And Jesus brings that same sign to his generation. A sign that God is calling people to repentance. Verse 31 then, Jesus talks about the queen of the south. The queen of the south shall rise up in judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the utmost parts of the earth to hear of the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, a greater than Solomon is here. And if you remember from Solomon's life as he served as king, his wisdom and then the results of his acting in wisdom were so great that all of the world seemed to know about it. And this queen from a place called Sheba came to see what she had heard about. Jesus references this saying, she shall rise up in judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. Well, how is this going to be the case? Because a greater than Solomon is here. Surely we understand that Jesus is greater than Solomon. Certainly his healing and his teaching has shown that his wisdom and his power and his nearness to God far exceeds that of Solomon. If we think of Jonah, and as we think of Solomon, and we put them up against Jesus, as Jesus does here in this text, we find Jesus sinless. We find Jesus dedicated to the task that the Father has bestowed upon him. But then think of Jonah. Jonah had to be forced to do his work. And think of Solomon. Though wiser than everyone else in his day, we still find him later in life failing in the use of wisdom in certain areas. So surely a greater than Jonah and a greater than Solomon was here before them. But this generation would not heed Jesus. Jesus moves now to begin talking about lamps. Verse 32, I skipped verse 32. The men of Nineveh shall rise up in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonas, and behold, a greater than Jonas is here. So same point made there from verse 31. Now verse 33, no man, when he hath lighted a candle, putteth it in a secret place, neither under a bushel, but on a candlestick, that they which come in may see the light. Now lamps in Jesus' day, a little different than the lamps that we have in this room this morning. I assume when Brother Jimmy or whoever was first got here this morning, they flipped a switch and on came the light. Well, the lamps in Jesus' day were made from clay. They contained a liquid oil, and they had a wick. And these oil lamps gave off a small amount of flickering light. Probably some of you have been to Cracker Barrel and seen the oil lamps that they have there. A little bit different, but at least that can put you in the right mindset. The idea that Jesus is portraying here is no one placed a lamp, especially a lamp like this, in a hidden place. And you and I have the children's song, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Hide it under a bushel, no, I'm going to let it shine. 
Why? Because you don't, you don't hide light. If you're going to turn on light, the point of turning on the light is to have it so that you can see what's in the space where you have turned on the light. You use light for your benefit. Now, to Jesus' point, then, he talks about the eye being the light of the body. Notice verse 34. The light of the body is the eye. Therefore, when thine eye is single, thy whole body is full of light. But when thine eye is evil, thy whole body is full of darkness. So your eye provides light for the body. Then in verse 35 and 36, take care then that your eye is good and that your body is full of light. Take heed therefore that the light which is in thee be not darkness. If thy whole body therefore be full of light, having no part dark, the whole shall be full of light as when the bright shining of a candle doth give thee light. Walvert and Zuck in their commentary write here, when a person's eyes, like lamps, react properly to light, he can function normally. Being receptive to Jesus' teachings would show that they were full of light and they were benefiting from his teachings. We must ask of the text here, well, how are we to do this? If we are not to hide the light of God, And if the light of the body is the eye, and we're to be showing forth the love of God as lights in the world, well, what are we to be doing? Well, first, we would learn from this that we let the word of Jesus enter our lives and light it up. Think of all of the things in a given day or even a given hour that come through your eyes. Is it more darkness or is it more light? And Jesus lays out this case here that we are to be light... We are not to be hidden. And for this, we must make sure that the lights of our bodies are light and not dark. So let the word of God be this for you. Let your body be full of light. Let the dark deeds of evil find no place. He's already dealt with that with the the demons. He said, you cast out one demon, but you don't fill up the, the house. You've cleaned it up nice. He's going to go get seven of his friends and... They'll inhabit the house, and the state of them at the end is worse than at the first. Those are the verses leading into this in the 20s there. So we must be filling ourselves with light, listening to, obeying, practicing the word, being part of the kingdom actively. We must be living in such a way that darkness has no place inside of us, no chance for the things of darkness, demons and the like, to find a place to live. We know of devils that they love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. So Jesus talks about light. And then as we get to verse 37, he talks about love. And as he spake, a certain Pharisee brought him to dine with him. And he went in and he sat down to meet. Now this is a unique transaction or transition. These guys have been trying to entrap Jesus. I mean, we're 37 verses into a chapter here. That's a lot of conversing that's been going on. And all along the while, they've been asking questions and they've been making pointed statements to sort of detour him in his ministry or to trip him up here. And now the guy says, do you want to come to my house and eat? Well, this proves to you that Jesus was a lot like some of us because no matter how upset he might have been with him, he still went and had dinner with them. Hard to get me to not, you know, come have some good food. You've got to really offend me to keep me from that, right? 
uniquely as Jesus enters and sits down to eat. In verse number 38, we read that he doesn't wash up first. And when the Pharisees saw it, so verse 37, he went in and sat down. The Pharisees saw it, verse 38, he marveled that he had not first washed before dinner. Now we understand this from our view of hygiene in our world. Before you eat, you wash your hands. You get that. It's not exactly what's going on here, but, but that can be in your mind as we go through this to help you understand this. Pharisaic practice involved washing hands ritually before eating. Even if, even if there was no soap, if there was nothing to get rid of the germs, you went through the practice of doing something to your hands, meaning you were ceremonially unclean prior to this, but you've done this thing before men as unto God to make yourself clean to do what it is you're going to do next. Well, Jesus has just been in the presence of demons and these crowds here. So before this Pharisee, he was ritually unclean. Now, I do want to make a point to you about Jesus' life here. And I haven't studied this out completely. But I think from this, and I think we'll find all throughout the Gospels, that Jesus never gives himself over to their cleansing methods. And why would that be? He never sinned. Yet without sin, the prophet Isaiah said, this lamb would live. And so should he ever need to cleanse himself, he would be acknowledging there, well, I, well I've, I've done something unclean, so I, I need to make for that. So I think we'll find all throughout the Gospels with Jesus that he never takes part in any of this. He's the fulfillment of all of these things. Now, what is Jesus' point in us knowing this? Well, this practice, not washing your hands before dinner, kids, I'm not letting you off the hook here. We know what you do with those hands. Go wash your hands before you come to the table. And don't just hand me the roll. Hand me the bowl. Can I get a witness? It's one of my favorite Andy Griffith episodes. Ernest T. Bass comes to dinner. Would you please, please pass the bread? And he, he tosses him a piece. He says, we don't, we don't heave the bread. We, we hand the bread. And so he picks up a roll. We don't hand just one. We hand the whole thing. And so he picks up all of the potatoes and hands the whole thing. Just pass me the bowl, you know? Well, these Pharisees, this is not what's happening here, despite my Andy Griffith theology. This was another way that they would update the law of Moses, kind of adding things to it, rather than following an explicit biblical command. The religious organization of that day, the institution, was good at saying, well, here's, here's the law Moses gave us. To be able to keep that, we should also do this and this and this and the other thing. And so where God initially just said, here's about ten things. Really, three. If you could keep the three, you're going to keep the other seven. But here's about ten things. If you do those, you'll be doing all right. And they turned it into 661 things. Anybody in here live with somebody like that? Yeah, my family's looking at me. I'm wired this way. Well, this is what they were doing here. And so Jesus doesn't respond politely to it. They've invited him to a meal. He sits down to eat. And then they marvel that he didn't ceremonially cleanse himself before dinner. So verse 39, the Lord said unto him, Now do you Pharisees make clean the outside of the cup and the platter, but your inward part is full of ravening and wickedness. You fools. 
Did not he that made that which is without make that which is within also? He goes on the attack here. He says, you take great care to wash the outside of the dish, which never actually touches anything that you eat. And then you ingest food into a body dominated on the inside by greed and wicked thoughts and wicked actions. He calls them fools. He says here, how foolish could you actually be? What does he mean? God is most interested in our inward man being clean, being pure. So quit dedicating yourselves to legalistic actions in which you take pride that actually do no good for everybody else. This is Jesus' rebuke to them. He says, instead of this, why don't you in love give to help as you can? Verse 41, but rather. So verse 40, he's called them fools. Verse 37 through verse 39, he's pointed out their error. Verse 41, he gives them a solution. But rather give alms of such things as you have, and behold, all things are clean unto you. Now, he's going to go on up before you under, misunderstand verse 41. Because I know some of you, 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 you're Baptists, you just put it in your brain. You said, oh, well, good thing I put my check in the plate in the lobby before I came in here this morning. Thank you. Well, I appreciate that you put your check in the plate before you came in this morning. But Jesus is going to rebuke them here in a minute for that type of thinking. This is not his point. His point is, show the love of God instead of showing off how you keep the law of God. And he doesn't say don't keep the law of God. Some misunderstand and misappropriate Jesus' teachings to be that, don't they? Well, Jesus fulfilled all the law. Now I'm under grace. I can live however I want and do whatever I want to. That's not what he says. He just says, in addition to you keeping the law, why don't you keep that inwardly and keep that to yourself and then outwardly in love. Show God's love by helping in any possible way that you can. Be generous. H.A. Ironside said it this way, when, when the love of God fills the heart, so that one will be concerned about the needs of others, then only will these outward observances have any real value. He who is constantly gathering up for himself in utter indifference to the poor and needy about him gives evidence that the love of God does not dwell in him. That's convicting. From here, beginning in verse 42, Jesus gives some woes. He's going to give three woes to the Pharisees, and then he's going to give woes to the scribes. So I want us to go through these woes. Verse 42, he begins by saying, Woe to you, Pharisees. Now, a woe is a, is a, is a warning. It's the same as if I was about to drive my car across the bridge, and the bridge was out. You would stand out there and say to me, Whoa! This is what Jesus is saying here. Can you kids help with that? How do we say woe? Yeah, I've already put you guys to sleep. Whoa! I mean, you don't, you don't whisper a woe. You don't say, whoa, the bridge is out. No, you say, whoa! Don't go over there! Okay, you're awake now? Good. This is what Jesus is saying here. Thanks. How do you interpret that, Leanna? <laughs> yeah. 
So Leanna's telling Jason what I'm saying with her hands, but I'm sure when her children get in trouble in church, she also has to tell Jason that the children are getting in trouble during church. And Jason, you need to get the kids or something, which Miss Alma's got them headlocked up here. So good job, Miss Alma. Thanks. <laughs> Was that, I'm not a part of this? That one? Okay, back to the woe of the Pharisees. So Jesus says in verse 42, Woe, Pharisees, you excel in the visible and you are careless with the invisible, with that which only God can see. Notice this. But woe unto you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and all manner of herbs and pass over judgment and the love of God, and these ought ye to have done and not to leave the other undone. Now don't miss the point here simply because you don't necessarily bring as your offering to the gathering of the church herbs. It's not how we do things now. You bring currency if the Somebody needs the herbs, we'll use the currency to, to go buy the herbs. They were actually bringing these, these things. So grab a hold of this idea. Now, I don't know a lot about herbs, but the thing I know and the ones that I have seen planted around the yard is that they're, they're kind of these tiny little plants and the, the growth that's on them is not all, always a, a big thing. They're, they smell great or they smell distinct and they're useful in all of this. But, but there's, a, there's a smallness to what Jesus, the point Jesus is making here. These Pharisees would point out to everyone that they counted every leaf of the smallest plants they grew in their gardens to be sure they gave a tenth of these to God. I'm going to use corn. I know it's not an herb. But I want to use corn as the example here. You grew a stalk of corn and it put off ten ears. What, how many ears does a stalk of corn put? Three or four? Okay. All right. So it put off three ears of corn. Chance the farmer. Hey, I'm a city boy. I'm with Miss Carol when she said, I don't know if I want to live in the boondocks. This, we had this conversation, Shanae and I did, when the church said, would you come to Kingston Springs and preach here? We were like, ah, oh, it's awfully rural. Now let me tell you where I'm at today. The traffic in White Bluff has gotten unmanageable. <laughs> Amen. Come on. Mayor, do something about it about this. Quit building houses. Anyways. These guys, I'm just going to use a stalk of corn here. Three, they put off three ears of corn. They shuck all of the things there and, and get all the kernels down and they count every kernel. How many kernels are on an ear of corn? Do we know this? Okay. I didn't know if that's something y'all knew, you farming people. There's a hundred kernels here on this one, a hundred on this one, a hundred on this one. So I've got three hundred kernels. So how much do I need to tithe? I'm going to get 30 of those. So I show up to church Sunday morning. I've got my little bag, and I've got my 30 kernels. Shake it before the preacher's nose and drop it in there. Bow my chest out and go sit in my spot. And Jesus said, whoa, whoa, you Pharisees. You're, you're tithing the mint and the rue and all manner of herbs, but you're passing over judgment and the love of God. Now see the smallness and the bigness. Mint and rue and herbs, this is just a tiny little thing. Now he doesn't say, don't give. He doesn't say, don't, don't tithe. But he just says, you're so focused and so detailed about this minute little thing. I mean, if, if I'm going to tithe corn, 
Would a handful suffice? Would taking one ear and giving it away and keeping two for myself, that'd work, right? I don't have to count the kernels. The goal is not to make sure in heaven that the record books are, are equaled out. Jesus says you're, you're missing the larger point. You're passing over the judgment and the love of God. These you ought to have done and not leave the other undone. When he talks about rue here, I didn't know this, but I found it in my studying. This was a wild plant. It did not require a tithe. So Jesus is going even further in his accusation against them. He's saying, you're making sure that you tithe exactly 10% of the things you've grown here and you even go out and get some offering off the rue, which is something you did not grow, and you're giving from that too. So he's saying you're putting yourselves out there as very generous people, but you're actually not generous at all on the inside. You're failing to love God, and you're failing to love justice for others. It's his specific accusation in verse 42. Trent Butler writes here, Correct religious practice has no meaning if one's daily life does not reflect love for God, and constant attention to ensuring justice and hope for other people, especially those whom society tends to oppress or ignore. Church, I hope we hear the woe here this morning. We can gather like this, we can dress like this, we can sing like this, we can hold our Bibles and go through the religious ordeal that we've planned for ourselves here. But if we leave here and do nothing the rest of the week, woe to us. We're to be such light in the world that the world around us knows the love of God. Verse 30, 43 then, he says, Woe to you Pharisees, you are filled with pride. Kids, how do we say woe? You're going to have trouble with this youth choir tonight, I think, getting them to sing. Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the uppermost seats in the synagogues and greetings In the markets, they love to parade themselves, to occupy positions of prominence in the synagogues, to attract as much attention as possible when they went out into the marketplaces. They were in love with themselves rather than being in love with God. They loved what they thought God had allowed for them. That's what they loved, and not God himself. This is the problem with a spoiled kid. They sort of love what mom and dad can give them more than loving mom and dad. That's why as parents we have to be careful that we're not spoiling our children. Now I did that with the first three. The fourth one, I've called him my grandson's son, so we spoil him. No, I'm just kidding. These Pharisees liked what they thought they got from God more than liking God. Jesus said, woe to you, you're filled with pride. Verse 44, woe to you Pharisees, full of hidden corruption and uncleanness. Notice it. He says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Now here he includes the scribes. For you are as graves graves which appear not, and the men that walk over them are not aware of them. So Jews were not to have any contact with anything dead or anything regarding the dead. So it was a very important thing in their society that graves be well marked. Same in our society, I guess. But Jesus says here, You guys are like unmarked graves. What an insult. I mean, he just really just zings them here, doesn't he? He said, people come in contact with you and they become unclean without even knowing it according to your own laws and standards. 
Then he gives several woes then to the, the lawyers. These are the scribes. They were the ones who were experts in the law of Moses. Verse 45, after he included the scribes in verse 44, one of the lawyers then says to him, Master, thus saying, thou reproachest us also. He kind of cries out shot there. Ow, you got me. Though these lawyers were skilled in telling others what to do, it was commonly known about the scribes that they didn't always practice what they told other people that they had to do. It was almost like their knowledge of what they had to do was enough so they could live however they wanted to, but the other people had to go live it out because they didn't have the knowledge. So one of these lawyers, convicted, says, hey, you're insulting us here. And Jesus says, well, while we're on that topic, verse 46, woe unto you also, you lawyers, for you laid men with burdens grievous to be born, which ye yourselves touched not the burdens with one of your fingers. You put unnecessary burdens on people, and you don't even offer to help them bear them. The scribes' role in their society was to study the law of Moses and write the modern interpretations that the people were obliged to fulfill. And they got good at that, but they never showed the people how. It's like saying, you're wrong if you do this, and you're wrong if you do this, you're wrong if you do this. You've offended God if you don't do this and this and this and this. Okay, now what do I do? Well, that's not my job. They, they forced obedience, but they never tried to make obedience easy. In fact, it was almost like they felt more religious if they could force obedience on others and see them fail at trying to be obedient to these impossible things they put up before people then, then we're a little more pious now because of this. We would just say that's legalism in, in today's church. Along with this, what were they not showing? Love or justice. Till Jesus pronounces this woe to them. Verse 47 and 48, he says, Woe to you. Rebuild the sepulchres of the prophets, and your fathers killed them. Truly you bear witness that you allow the deeds of your fathers, for they indeed killed them, and you build their sepulchers. What is he saying there? He says you're hypocrites. You parade around building these monuments to the prophets that your fathers killed. God gave these prophets the word of God, and you didn't want to obey it and repent, so you killed these guys off, and now you, to seem like you're separating from your fathers in killing these prophets, you're building memorials to these prophets. Now note Jesus' conviction then. That seems, seems good so far, right? We want to change something wrong that our forefathers did, so we're going to publicly identify ourselves with these prophets that they killed. That, that seems right. So why is Jesus being convicting here? He included the apostles there. Well, they hadn't gotten to the time of the apostles yet. I mean, barely. This is Jesus foretelling. You're going to kill them just like your fathers killed the prophets. He's pronouncing judgment upon these who would reject him as the Messiah and persecute the church. He says, woe to you. Verse 49 through 51, he lays out this blood guilt. And he he puts the, the blood guilt of all killed who were sent by God to foretell of the coming Messiah. And then in their plotting to kill Jesus. 
And then in their future persecution of the church and the apostles. Verse 49. Therefore also said the wisdom of God, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they shall slay and persecute, that the blood of all the prophets that was shed from the foundation of the world may be required of this generation. From the blood of Abel unto the blood of Zacharias, which perished between the altar and the temple, verily I say unto you, it will be required of this generation. Now, side note. Paul's right there in the sermon. If the Lord said to our generation, you're going to be guilty of the blood of all of these killed in your generation, what would you want to do in your generation? Stop that killing. Stop the process for that killing. And these guys are, it's clear what Jesus is saying to them here. Instead of building a monument to the dead prophets, why don't you not kill the apostles and persecute the church? Now, it's not that clear to them as it is to us. I understand that. But the warning was clear there, and the, the availability of the knowledge was sure that you're doing something that you're going to be guilty of. Everyone from before the foundation of the world and everyone for that blood is going to be on your generation's hands. Well, what should that generation do? Stop it. Do something about it. Verse 52, then he says, Woe to you, scribes, you keep people from truth. Woe unto you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge and have entered not in yourselves, and them that are entering in, you hindered. They had so, I don't remember who I, I stole this from somebody, but I don't know who I got it from. They had so reinterpreted, overinterpreted, and misinterpreted the law. That's pretty good, isn't it? Reinterpreted, overinterpreted, misinterpreted the law, that they were actually hindering people's relationships with God. They didn't use God's word to know about God. They were using God's word to burden people who wanted to know about God. Does that bring into light what Jesus said about his yoke? It is easy. He said, my burden's light. What did the institution do? They said, nah, that's too easy. Let's make it heavy. Let's make it hard. That's not what God wants. One clear sign that we've become too institutional as the modern church in America and gotten away from what we would say the, the old past in Scripture was it Jeremiah? Yeah, Jeremiah said, Find the old past that your fathers went on. That's the easy way. You understand what that means. There's a, there's a path that's been worn out ahead of you by the generation before you. And it's right and it's good. They wouldn't have gone that way if it weren't. But generation after generation after generation doesn't do that. They approve, improve upon. Well, we know that's the way they did it, but... But they didn't have this or they didn't know about that. And that's not always bad. Very thankful I did not have to ride an animal to church this morning. Amen. Thank you, Brother Doug. Maybe you did ride one and maybe you did want to ride one. Fine. I would suggest that more in Kingston Springs than White Bluff. Have y'all heard about the traffic here? When the church 
as an organization is not helping people to be better Christians, well, then what are we doing? This was Jesus' woe to the Pharisees and the scribes as a part of Judaism in his day. I mean, he's all but saying to them, you guys who are trying to trip me up, you're eventually going to put me on a cross and kill me. And I think had he said that out loud, they might have said, hey, that's a good idea. Because they were already sick of him. Now that saddens us and it grieves us. But I wonder if Jesus were to come and speak to the modern church, what were his woes be to us this morning? We can for sure become guilty of making his easy and light burden heavy and hard. We can for sure be guilty of helping people see the complications of the doctrines of Scripture more than the love of God. We can be for sure more about seeking anything but justice for those who need justice. With this, in verse 53 and 54, the scribes and the Pharisees, they join forces and they begin to try to build a case for crucifixion against Jesus. And as he said these things unto them, the scribes and the Pharisees began to urge them vehemently and to provoke him to speak of many things, laying wait for him and seeking to catch something out of his mouth that they might accuse him. What's Jesus' point here? I think what Jesus is saying to these before him that he agreed to have dinner with is, where is the love? I see your formality. I see your doctrine. I see what you've established as your organized religion. But where is the love of God in all of this? God has been so loving to you. And in return, you're laying law on others and not love. And he started all of this with this reminder that no one lights a candle and puts it under a bushel. No, he, he leaves it out in the center of the room for all to be able to see it. So this is Jesus' teaching on light and love. Disciples of Christ are to be letting God's light shine through their living. How we love others is a good measure of are we doing this or are we not. Disciples of Jesus are lights. Letting others see God's light and living out an example of light in their lives. Disciples love God and work for justice in the world rather than following man-made ritualistic laws. I'm going to give you a side note on that one. Don't let the world around you define what justice is. Let the Word of God define what justice is for you. And though the world around us has it flip-flopped, you stand for biblical justice. Disciples of Christ are the source of help for others, not the source of making them unclean or unrighteous. So what do we do? We must be praying. We must be praising. We must be living dependent upon God's provisions. We must ask the Holy Spirit to be guiding us daily. We must be in the Word and obeying the Word. And we must be letting God's love shine through our living. Let's stand and pray. Father, as we come to this time of response, considering the word that you put before us today, help us to be the church as you intended us to be. Surely your yoke is easy and your burden is light. Lord, I, I realize that it's easier said from the pulpit than lived out in the world. 
There's a lot of heaviness in the world in which we live. So help us as your church to strive to be the light of the world. To be a city set on a hill that cannot be hid. To let our light so shine before men that they may see our good works and glorify our Father which is in heaven. Help us to love. Oh Lord, where is the love? We've we've allowed the, the bitterness and the crassness of the world in which we live to to sort of just bottle up the love of Christ that should be just bubbling out of us as Christians. Give us zeal and patience this week to be lights in the world showing the love of God to those who need it. Help us now as we respond to the word and pray and seek your help in this. We pray in Jesus' name. And as Miss Wiggins plays, let's remain.